everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Scraps. I'm one of your hosts, Jojo Platt. And as always, well, except for last week, I'm joined by my brother from another mother and father, Arun Sridhar. Arun was kind enough to fly solo last week while I took care of some parenting obligations. If you haven't already done so, go take a listen to his interview with Dr. Howard Levin. You know what I'm about to ask for next. We ask for it at the beginning of every episode. But if you could take a few moments to share scraps with your friends, your colleagues, your enemies, your Amazon driver, your DoorDash delivery guy, we'd greatly appreciate it. Or if you're not the sharing type, leave a review of scraps on your favorite podcast platform. It's greatly appreciated. If you'd like to sponsor scraps or would like to suggest a guest, please feel free to stalk Arun or me on social media. We're pretty easy to find. And with that, let's dive into the good stuff. We're pretty excited about this episode because it deals directly with a global epidemic. No, not COVID. The epidemic that was plaguing the world long before COVID hit. We're talking about the opioid crisis. There are a lot of considerations in opioid use and misuse, and we're not going to get into that today. We're not going to get into the hows or the whys. Instead, we're going to talk to folks who are actually doing something about it. Folks over at Spark Biomedical have come up with a novel way to ease opioid withdrawal and to make the first step in getting clean much more attainable than it has ever been. They'll talk about their device, their clinical trials, and here's a pro tip for you. Grab a Kleenex, because when they start talking about those babies in the NICU, the tears are going to flow. Without further ado, please welcome Daniel Powell, co-founder, president, and CEO of Spark Biomedical, and Dr. Navid Kodaparast. Co-founder, Chief Scientific Officer. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate having you on. I know it's um, even even in the face of a diminishing COVID, you guys are incredibly busy. You've got a new publication out this week and um, some great results on opioid withdrawal and neonates. Um, can, you, can you back up a little bit and tell us how you came up with the idea to use vagus nerve stimulation for opioid withdrawal? So there's actually a long history of neurostimulation for withdrawal. Um, Naveed found papers going all the way back to 1947 in Russia for alcohol withdrawal. They're basically using electric shock therapy. But in recent years, um, there's been electroacupuncture and in, a, in growing evidence for op- specifically for opioid withdrawal that gave us our inspiration. But I, I think maybe Naveed tells you a little. When I met Naveed, they, he was working on auricular neurostem uh, in other applications uh, transcutaneously. So maybe he can give you some background of has, as how he knew how well this would apply for opioid withdrawal. Right. Yeah, that's that's great then. So, yeah, we were we were definitely doing some different types of research using non-invasive auricular neurostimulation, mainly towards cardiac disease. So for, you're probably familiar with some of the work that came out of University of Oklahoma um, with Stavros Savrakis looking at using vagus nerve stimulation for atrial fibrillation, reduction of the burden of AFib. And that was using invasive vagus nerve stimulation. So the traditional stimulation of cervical vagus nerve um, using a cuff electrode. But as we know, that started to evolve. You know, we, we started seeing this type of technology uh, into the more non-invasive setting. And Stavros and I were actually on a grant um, together using VNS for AFib 
And then we dabbled into using it for auricular uh, or looking at the auricular approaches. Um, at Nexion, we had a grant actually in Belgium, uh, which is the prior company I was at, looking at how to use auricular in, uh, in humans specifically that had atrial fibrillation. But uh, that study never really got off the ground while I was there. Uh, so what we saw was that, which is really important, uh, you know, for, for me as a guy that had deep roots in, in vagus nerve stimulation for neuroplasticity, uh, I really wanted to see if it activated certain central structures, specifically the NTS. And the literature started coming out. Uh, I think one of the, the earlier papers uh, by Fragnos uh, pointed showing how in fMRI imaging you can activate the NTS and other uh, central nervous region structures that are uh, have been associated with the traditional term of BNS. And so it kind of ensued after that point. And sort of the ironic part of this whole thing is I used to work at Cyberonics and we had an investment in a German auricular neurostim company called Cerbomed. And when I got there, I heard about this brand new employee and I heard about this investment. I, I think I said, that's ridiculous. It will never work. Who, who can stimulate through the ear? So, so ironically, now I, I get to uh, uh, be co-owner in a company specifically doing the thing I mocked about six years ago. Yeah, <laughs> I actually have. It's interesting, isn't it? How, how the ways of life actually work. Uh, so I have a question for you, Naveed, in terms of just explaining the science behind the vagal nerve stimulation. So let's just take a slight detour and then we go to, with the intention of coming back to what you're doing uh, at, at, at Spark here. Can you just walk us through the mechanism? So just walk walking through your early work uh, at Oklahoma and and uh, what you just described there about how the stimulation of vagus nerve works for atrial fibrillation. Can you walk us through that mechanism in terms of what the responses were and why? And then we'll probably kind of draw a parallel track to from that to the mechanism here for, for opioid addiction, if that's okay. If it's, if it's actually better, I'd rather talk a little bit about neuroplasticity. That's more Let's do that then. Let, let's actually talk about neuroplasticity. That's what we find too. <laughs> yeah, so that, that was actually how I drew the line from, you know, where, where I was coming from, from animal world, preclinical vagus nerve stimulation. So, you know, my, my specialty or what I was trained in to do was vagus nerve stimulation to enhance neuroplasticity, um, primarily to uh, ensure motor recovery. Uh, in stroke ischemic models. Um, and the way we were doing that was by stimulating the cervical uh, uh, vagus nerve uh, using a cuff electrode uh, and pairing that to motor movements uh, to ensure that the timing of VNS was paired with the timing of a successful movement. And we saw that to be extremely successful, right? We were, at, you, these, these are papers that are, were published uh, in 2010, 2011, 2012, and so on and so forth from the Michael Kilgard lab and Robert Renneker lab at UT Dallas. Um, and we, we, we saw tremendous success in being able to restore motor movement uh, in these preclinical models of stroke. Uh, they've taken this and translated it into other disease models, PTSD, traumatic brain injury, uh, spinal cord injury. Uh, so some of the work that was done by Patrick Ganser. Uh, he's now at Patel. Um, but the, 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 the thin line, or I guess the, the silver lining between, you know, this invasive versus non-invasive is what I 
described earlier regarding activation of the NTFs, right? How do you tap into the central nervous system through this collagenous structure on the side of your head, right? And so there is a branch that comes off of the vagus nerve, the auricular branch of the vagus nerve. Um, and there's some other cranial nerve branches that are nearby that we focused on. Uh, our co-founder, Alejandro Kovalin, is an expert on trigeminal nerve stimulation. Uh, a lot of his background was re regarding uh, migraine, pain, uh, those types of indications. And so he, he had very good uh, expertise in regard to how to use transcutaneous approaches to activate trigeminal nerve branches. And then I was deep in the literature on the vagus side. Um, but like I said, what is important was by stimulating the auricular branch of the vagus nerve, we do know that it has a direct projection to the NTS and it has, and it has been shown to activate the NTS. Uh, the question was for Spark, well, how does activation of NTS eventually lead to the release of endogenous opioids? And although we haven't proven this with our own technology, there is ample evidence in pain research and in opioid withdrawal research looking at how electrical stimulation can release endogenous opioids, also known as endorphins. And so we're, we're hinging our theoretical mechanism on that, that we're able to stimulate this system in a way that is beneficial, but also in a way to help mitigate uh, the withdrawal symptoms. So do you have any data that actually suggests that you're actually able to increase the levels of, of, of brain uh, or regional specific increases in, in endorphins in the brain regions? Spark does not, no. But there is prior literature showing how uh, stimulation via electricity can actually uh, increase the levels of specific endorphins. Uh, they've measured this in spinal perfusate through CSF in animals and in humans. Uh, but that is something that Spark is very much interested in, uh, in studying as we develop our mechanism of action. And that's one of our commitments as a company a lot of times is like, let's keep moving the science forward and actually get this in an fMRI with our actual device uh, and and see that. So that's something on our radar this year is is to, you know, always be moving the science forward. Cool. So you your first clinical trial is with neonates. How 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 did you land on on neonates as a subject? It was it was kind of funny. So um, I was flying out to the Neurotech Reports meeting, uh, the Neurotech Leadership Forum meeting in San Francisco, which is where I think I met you for the first time. Uh, we had just formed the the company, and we were we were going to do this in adults. And I was on a, I was on a flight and doing the typical market research, you know, how many, how many patients are there? What's the prevalence of the disease? How does it, and you're, you're doing your typical business plan stuff. And I hit a link on neonatal abstinence syndrome, which is neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome in a different name. And which I can't remember how I streamed a video on a Southwest flight, but somehow I got the video to come through and I saw this baby going through withdrawal and it was shaking and screaming and crying and it was, I was just like so impactful. I immediately emailed Navid and Alejandro and I said, we have to make a baby device. It was just kind of like that. Like we're three months into the, the company, uh, just still trying to figure out what we're going to do. And I was like, we got to also make a baby device. I think by the time I landed they, and I'd sent them the link, they both had replied back. 
absolutely, whether we make money off it or not, this has to be done. Like we're, we're the people to do it. The next day I'm sitting in the neurotech forum and, and Bashar Badrin got up and produced and, and debuted his data on neonatal auricular stem for stroke recovery and in, in, in newborns and standing before us was the only person in the world who has an IRB approval and has stimulated a baby's ear 24 hours after I saw this. I nearly tackled him coming off the stage and I ran up to him like a crazy guy. And I was like, we got to work together. <laughs> he was like, who are you? Um, and that's where we ended up running. You did look a little Say again? I said, you noticed we didn't really hang out very much on that conference. You did, you did come off as a little um, aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's just... You know, but that was, you know, it, it was one of those things where I, I told Dan, I was like, well, you know, doing getting IRB is already challenging. And, and there's a lot of reasons why. Right. Especially in adult trials, you know, getting NSR uh, for class two devices is, is becoming easier and easier. Um, but going into a neonatal population and delivering electricity is a big question mark. And. I, I told him, I was like, this may be, this is so admirable for Spark to be able to do, but without an IRB approval that we could potentially piggyback off of, um, it's almost dead in the water. So, okay, which, which, which was going to be my next question, actually, because uh, I think therein lies the very interesting conundrum in wanting to do something to ultimately being able to do it. So, I, I mean, just walk us through how you ensured that you were progressing from the vision or the desire to ultimately executing it. Is it, did it only, I think what I just heard you mention there was that it wouldn't have been possible if you hadn't found the clinician who already had an existing IRB approval. So just so that people can understand, can you just walk us through what the thresholds are that need, that people need to overcome to be able to run a trial in, in the pediatric population, especially a neonatal population. And right. then why it became easier for you to be able to do the trial uh, with, with the physician that you were working with, who already had an existing IRB approval for being able to trial the auricular vagal for the stroke population or stroke withdrawal. Right. Well, so a lot of, a lot of happenstance, a lot of good fortune. I won't say that, you know, you, you can always push a boulder as hard as you can, but you're going to need some luck. Um, but when we met Bashar, you know, that was just checking one box, essentially, because one great guy, easy to work with, extremely brilliant scientist. Uh, so all of those things are positives, gets well, gets along well with Spark uh, and our culture. Uh, his research actually was very similar to some of the research I was doing in the past at, at UT Dallas. Uh, so we we definitely had an intellectual commonality, uh, but what was more important was we needed a neonatologist, right? And Bashar is not, he's a scientist, he's a neuroscientist just like us. And uh, being in the nows population, uh, being able to understand not only from the neurostimulation side, but just from the physiology and the pathology of nows, we, we were fortunate enough to meet Dorothea Jenkins, uh, which is a neonatologist at MUSC, um, that happened to have excellent experience doing neurostimulation, uh, specifically through the auricular branches. 
Um, and so that partnership developed very quickly. And we, we actually discussed doing a pilot trial uh, because we had some small funds from Southwest Pediatric Device Consortium that Dan was able to get through a, a competition he was at. Uh, but what we knew was we didn't have enough funds to be able to do a large enough study. So we went through the NIH pathway, right? So we, we submitted an SBIR uh, with MUSC as our partner. Um, Doe and I were both the PIs on the study. Um, and it got funded through the NIH NIDA HEAL initiative. And that, that literally sparked, no pun intended, this whole idea and allowed us to be able to do the, the trial. But it's also an interesting thing, right? You can find the neonatologist and then you you can find the person with the right experience, but they also need to have the right population for being able to do that. So I think how, how, did, how did that nexus happen uh, once you found the physician? Did it just so happen that she also had the uh, the right population at hand or if not that would have added another layer of complication that you would have actually had to go through yeah so so yes so charleston south carolina actually has a fairly high population uh, of adults experiencing opioid withdrawal right uh, and then when you usually have these hot zones hot zones meaning during the opioid epidemic there are hot zones different cities different states if adults are experiencing high opioid withdrawal or OUD disorder, um, there's the, there's a high likelihood that the, the mother will also be a participant. Um, and so, yes, the MUSC had a fairly high NOWS population. That was something we had to ensure when we put the grant in to make sure we had good enrollment uh, for this trial. Um, on a side note, just one thing, their MUSC was, is actually such a good clinical site for this. They're part of multiple NALS trials. So they were a part of our trial, and they were also part of the Eat, Sleep, Consult trial, which has, I believe, 25 or 26 clinical trial sites across the nation. And so they're, they're participants in several trials involving neonates. But Arun, to your point, like the process that you have to have a site and all the legal stuff to go through. You have to have the physicians and champions that know it. You have to have a protocol to get that IRB approval, and that protocol has to be well thought out. And even if that protocol gets approved, if it wasn't a good protocol, and then you go in to run the trial, you're going to have bad results, or you'll discover you know, your planning wasn't work. So it's an enormous amount of planning to get to execution. And then, you know, I, I just was talking about it to a company, um, uh, today that had a, a technology, picked a site, started clinical, the physicians promised the world, yeah, we, we can get this enrolled. They'll tell you every time they can get it enrolled and they never got a single patient enrolled in three years. And, and that could be the death of your company. And you're like, everybody said the right thing. And then there was no enrollment. And, and it certainly is a challenge for our industry. I will say, thank goodness we were, you know, it, it was serendipitous that this was our site. Um, and our next trial is going to need multiple sites. So, you know, we're in that process of recruiting two or three more sites to run a bigger study to get FDA approval. And it's the same challenge. <laughs> and then every, and then more sites you, get, you get multiple IRBs potentially. And, you know, you get four, four different hospitals and physicians and you get 16 different opinions on what it should be. It's, it's fun. <laughs> So just from a patient population perspective, so 
these you tried it in the neonatal population um these where the mothers addicted to prescription opioids where they addicted to to a kind of other kind of drug use in terms of of heroin or cocaine etc what where, where exactly did the did the did the patient population actually come from that you tested right so i would encourage you know since this is published now we have all of that data presented in the patient demographics and it is it's heart wrenching to see it right i i've looked at the different it's not even just the the substances that the mothers were on it's the the comorbidities that followed due to that substance use you know we had many infants that were experiencing bloodborne pathogens such as hiv syphilis gonorrhea then they had heart failure or heart excuse me heart issues uh that are just because it could have been that they're preemies and they were born too early um but yeah the mothers mothers were on heroin or pills and and um benzos and alcohol and it was it's awful it's awful but at the same time there are some mothers that had to be on these right so they maybe they were recovering from an addiction prior so they're on buprenorphine or suboxone and they're doing the right thing um and they're trying to make a better life and that's we had several of those mothers and on the other side there's just the mothers that or on heroin, right? And smoking and drinking and all of that that just you know happened to have a baby and they delivered a baby. And an, you know, interesting, an interesting note, um best medical practice is to not get a mother to get off opioids if they're on because withdrawal is so horrible you could lose the baby from the traumatic withdrawal, you know, 5 to 7 days of your body going haywire is very dangerous to the pregnancy. So best practice, let's say a mom, a uh, mother was, you know, got pregnant and said, look, I got to get my life clean and protect this baby. And he's doing everything right. They probably are going to be on Suboxone or Buprenorphine. And so the baby will still go through withdrawal. Um, so that, that's an interesting thing we've looked at. Can we apply this to prenatal? Um, but that if, if you thought a neonatal trial was hard, a prenatal trial is 10 times that because you got two lives at risk. And I don't, that's another one. I throw this out to the universe. If, <laughs> if there's somebody out there to, uh, you know, help us get that to the finish line to try to reduce the number of babies born, which is about 35,000 a year in the U.S. that are born into, we'll say born independency, not born addicted because addictive is a, a psychological thing, but this is a physical dependence. So on your device is only used for a limited time correct so it's basically for a subacute use for the time that they are in in the hospital for i think it was is it 5 days or is it slightly longer than that in terms right. of so can you describe that, we, that sorry that that would be the sure, best question yeah that's, that's a great question Aaron. and so the way we designed the trial was you know every hospital essentially has different protocols on how they deliver morphine so morphine is the primary treatment option uh in terms of weaning the baby from their withdrawal symptoms or helping the baby get through the withdrawal symptoms um and it happens to be at MUSC they they deliver oral morphine every 3 hours and so with the idea that if you can deliver a tan right transcutaneous auricular stimulation and release the endogenous opioids you may supplant the need for morphine right so as the baby's getting to hour 3 their withdrawal symptoms are coming back up 
And at the hour two marker, we delivered 30 minutes and we did this four times a day, right? So every, every time, uh, one hour prior to each morphine administration, we deliver 30 minutes of TAN. Um, by doing that, our data demonstrated that we could reduce the withdrawal symptoms, which is measured on the Finnegan scale. Um, the Finnegan determines how much morphine you need to administer to the baby. And by keeping the Finnegan number down, essentially you would require less morphine and you could be able to wean the baby faster. Did you, did you ever have doubts about whether this would work? I mean, I, it seems like you guys have had a, a tremendous amount of um, luck, serendipity, master planning in the skies, whatever you want to call it. But uh, where did where did doubts come in? All the time. All the time. <laughs> our was, first yeah. adult. Yeah. Yeah. Our first adult. I mean, we we thought it should work. Our first adult subject um, switching over to that. They don't come back to the baby. So. Started on adults, went, and then while we've been doing adults, did this eight baby trial uh, in the middle of it. But um, I think Navid and it happened on the West Coast, and I mean, and we we hadn't heard results, and it was our first subject, and we were up like at eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, like where's Alejandro? Because he was running the trial, and I remember him uh, texting the the cow score reduction. And it showed up, I mean, we, and, and Navi and I were on the phone, we're just dying. We're like, I hope this works. Like, what are we going to do if it doesn't? And that first form came in and um, I, we were screaming on the phone like, <laughs> like kids. I was jumping up and down literally on the bed because I was in bed. And when the, when the thing came in, it was a 90% reduction in the score in two hours and was just, you know, but yeah, we each step of the way, we don't know. And then, and then we've had failure. I mean, we've had, you know, patients leave the study one hour after starting and you're like, yeah, you know, you, we've, it's, it's been serendipitous and nothing's been easy uh, at the same time. But it definitely speaks to the fact that you've, if you're able to, especially for a neonate, if you are able to bring down the, the dose of morphine that you actually have, or the physician will have to um, kind of inject or, or, or give orally in your, in your case, as you were mentioning there, I think that that is actually a significant impact that you can create, especially of all the effects that it can have on 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 the rest of the things that can happen in in a developing child um, as young as that. I mean, that's 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 super important. I couldn't agree more. And for for me, you know, the the data is the data. You know, you can I look at cow scores and Finnegan scores and morphine plots a lot, but what always resonates for me is the feedback specifically in the neonates from the nurses because they're in it day in, day out. They see these babies constantly. And when they come and say, this is working, right? As opposed to what they've seen in the past, which is thousands of babies, that's that resonates more to me than having eight babies in a trial, one baby in a trial, a hundred babies in a trial. If they say this works, that you know, it's anecdotal. You can say whatever the what, what kind of data that is, but it's it's impactful because they're they're the front line. So I I have a, a really good friend who adopted a baby uh, who was born um, dependent on on opioids, and now this wonderful little girl is a teenager. 
Um, but there, there, she will have lifelong residual effects. Is there any ability for, for Spark or for another partner to come in and, and take on that follow on that, that lifelong study to see how these kids do in the long term? That's, that's our goal. So we, we see two goals here is the faster we can get. So you have an underdeveloped baby and you're hitting hit his or her liver with narcotics or morphine for what the current standard is 23, 24 days in the NICU of this tapering. So our mean, our mean taper once they were on tan was about seven and a half days. Uh, so a significant reduction in the amount of morphine being administered in those early stages in life. So we do want to study this and say, okay, the faster we get them off oral morphine and have all those narcotics in these very early days, it's got to be better. Um, and then a long-term study, once we get a little bigger, and uh, a little more capable as a, an organization to do something like that is something we definitely want to do and see if would continue neurostimulation for the first six months make a difference? Uh, I don't know. Like, and what would be, how would you measure that? But there's, there's a lot to figure out of this. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a long shot to say that that first couple of weeks delivering neurostimulation is going to reverse the nine months of receiving opioids, right? That's, that's a very presumptuous thought to have, right? But, we do know that opioids, as Dan said, are harmful to the newborn. Uh, they can potentially be neurotoxic. There's studies looking at how it affects white matter um, uh, development uh, and causes white matter damage. Uh, and so we hope that we're able to prevent anything after they were born, right? But whether there's any neurobehavioral changes in the six months to when they're an adolescent and teenagers, is a study that we would hope to partner with, with someone or, or be able to see if our effects, we are following our infants out to one year. So we are looking at that. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, the device for the pediatric, the neonatal population received its FDA breakthrough designation just uh, recently. And it's also, I just thought it was really cute that it was also called as a Roo system, which I think uh, a lot of the Australians, given that they have kangaroos, soccerers, and many other roos in terms of how uh, they address their various sporting teams, I think they would be extremely proud. The question then is, where are you taking this now uh, from where from the results that you've had that you've just published to getting the FDA breakthrough designation? What does the path forward look like um, for, for this particular product? Um, our, our next, so we're We'll be looking to get a, a grant to help fund a bigger study, but regardless if we get it or not, we'll we'll move forward with a full blown study. And the and the process is pretty straightforward. Um, I say that, but then it's the FDA. So um, so we'll do a pre submission meeting. And so for anybody out there listening, always do your pre submission meeting. You may not like the results, but it's a free in ninety days. The FDA will answer whatever questions you have on your clinical direction, well, in, in product direction for free. Uh, so it, it's a good process. So we'll do a pre-submission. We'll outline what we think we should do to get FDA clearance. They'll give us the feedback and then we'll run a, a larger clinical study uh, and, and then submit it to the FDA if, if, you know, when we have the data. So, 
And then our other thing is we have to redesign the product. So surprisingly, an, an ambulatory device meant to be worn on the belt for an adult really is, is an ideal for a, a NICU setting. So we're um, designing the earpiece different for the babies. Uh, has a loop in the front and their hand could grab it and pull it off. Just little things you learn from usability and all changes. So we'll do a full revamp of the product specifically with all of our learnings for NICU. And then, and then you just run the process with the FDA. I, I, I'm hopeful on this one. There's such a, a need. Also, the breakthrough, for those who don't know, gives you a faster, more interactive response time for pre-submission. So like in that same 90-day period, instead of sending answers in 90 days later or sending questions in 90 days later getting answers, you get about two or three rounds and they're more interactive uh, with the FDA. So we'll be using that process to go back and forth, get agreement on the clinical study, the endpoints, the powering of it, and then, and then it's just get the study done. So you guys have an incredibly compelling story. I mean, I think it would be an absolute breeze to pitch this to investors. Where are you in your investment arc and, and where are you going next? <laughs> The last slide of every deck has a baby on it, and I just leave that there while I'm pitching when I, when, during the question and answer time period. Um, yeah, there's we have a lot of people who have invested um, because they want to invest in, in something that's really, you know, has a good mission. And, you know, not only is a good business, but, you know, um, is, you know, hopefully going to really impact lives. So we've done three rounds of investment, uh, not real big on all things considered, and we're finishing up. Um, our fourth round right now, uh, which is just almost full. So hopefully in a couple of weeks I'm done and we probably have one more to go just to get the company cash flow positive, but right. Raising money is, you know, for those starting, I heard raising money is the least of your worries and I didn't believe it. I think if you have a compelling product and, and a good team and plan, it, it raising money has been not as difficult as I thought it was going to be. It's still, it's still a grind and a challenge and you pitch and pitch and pitch, but um, you know, it, it's, it's gone pretty well so far. So Dan's never raised money, at least not like this, um, but he is very good at it. So he, he, <laughs> he makes it sound like he's modest and he's, it's measured, but he, he learned, he learned how to do it. And he's, you know, it, it was, it was tremendous watching him do that. Uh, and get rejected too, right? How many times have you gotten rejected? So, but yeah, he, 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 even through those, those bumps and grinds, he made it look, you know, easy, which was incredible. It is, it is nice to have an opioid epidemic behind you though, right? As bad as that is to say that it's true. And it's, it's something that a lot, you know, we're passionate because there is an opioid epidemic and we want to make a change to it, but it, people, everybody knows about it. So it, the story's there. And now that COVID's finally wrapping up and it's going to be over and gone so I can get back on the plane, um, we're going to be able to focus back on the first epidemic and, and the opioid epidemic. And I can tell you here in San Francisco, I can't drive from my office to my house, which is four miles, without seeing at least three drug deals and half a dozen people sprawled out on the sidewalk just writhing in either the highs or the lows of, of their addiction. So. It's it, it it's horrible, and it is through the roof because of the pandemic. So what we think we're going to see is about a forty percent increase 
in overdose deaths in 2020. And you take somebody, somebody dealing with addiction and the primary aspects of their life that can help recovery is meaningful employment, surrounded by family, a positive, hopeful outlook. And those three things got destroyed by the pandemic. You lose your job, you're isolated at your home, and the world's burning down around you and death tolls are clipping up on the TV every day. It is horrible for the mental health field. And it's depression's up, suicide's up, and addiction relapse is just through the roof. It's, it's really a tough scene behind how awful the pandemic is in all the lives it's taken. It's hard for it to get noticed. But our, 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 our behavioral health physician partners, um, at the beginning of COVID, they're all panicked because they didn't have any business. And then about three months in, they're overwhelmed with uh, spousal problems, depression, everything under the sun. So it's it's definitely taken a, there's a, a hidden a hidden damage that's not being calculated. So can you actually give us, so you painted a picture of what the neonatal product, the Rue product look, look like. Now, moving from there to the, to the vision of the adult uh, version of the product here, can you tell us a bit more about what the intended use case is uh, for the, for the adult population? Where are you targeting? Can you share a bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so when we began the company, we were first focused on acute withdrawal. So the five to seven days of trying to detox from substances such as heroin. And we that, that was sort of our beachhead where we began. It was it kind of kept the clinical trial down rather short. And in the predicate devices, the electroacupuncture devices that are out there gave us some, some guidelines that are, you know, it's, it gave us parameters to study and compare against and to get our FDA clearance. The vision always was, though, then to expand this product out beyond that. So after you go through an acute detox, you still have, you still feel horrible. And your brain has been altered functionally and structurally from years of, of being bathed in opioids. And the basic, so the body, I always say the body's lazy. You give it a chemical, it stops producing it. Uh, a bodybuilder takes steroids, they stop producing testosterone. And then when they stop the steroids, they don't automatically start back. The body's asleep. Our hypothesis is that's the same for the brain, and that is it, does, it doesn't produce its own endogenous endorphins, and then you remove the exogenous endorphins, and you're left with a brain that is in a deficit to deal with stressors, to deal with... Um, panic, your fight or flight sense, everything is, is broken. I, I have fam a family member that's a heroin addict and you can just tell he can't, when he's clean, he can't handle life stressors. And this is a real problem for recovery. So our next step is to then extend the therapy for the next 60, 90 or 180 days. We're figuring that out, study that and see if we can prove recovery and help restore the brain to some degree back to where it can produce its own endorphins and handle these stressors. So that's our So here vision. you're specifically talking about prescription opioid addiction, correct? You're not talking about heroin or cocaine. Oh, heroin too. Yeah, any opioid. A, a, any of them that you're talking about. Okay. All right. Most of our adult subjects were on 
what's it like 1200 morphine milligram equivalent. So about a gram of, of, uh, heroin a day. Uh, also a lot of them were detoxing from alcohol and, and or, uh, um, uh, methamphetamines as well. So yeah, so we're talking prescription or four, four out of five people using heroin originally started on pills, lost access to the pills. We're going through horrible withdrawal and moved to heroin. And this, and this again, this was abrupt discontinuation, right? So they took what they call in the addiction world, their hurrah dose the night before they check into treatment facility. And then the next morning they start experiencing withdrawals. It's usually about 12, 24 hours, right? But for heroin specifically. Um, and then they start the trial. If, they, if they're still in the right mindset, some of them don't consent, right? Because they, they're like, oh, this sounds great. I'll try this new, this new device. It sounds like it'll work. And then that's when they're still under the influence. And then when they start coming off and experiencing withdrawal, it's not their first rodeo. You know, they've, a lot of them go through rehab multiple times and they know what works. Um, so trying something new that might not help them in withdrawal, which by the way, they feel like they're going to die in this setting. Um, it's, it's scary. And so, yeah, it's, the, the fact that the device showed an effect that it did in, you know, the first one hour, and, and mind you, they had no, even no comfort medication during that first hour. It was just the device. Um, and then we allowed comfort medications throughout the rest of the trial, but no opioids. Which is exactly where I was going to go, because in terms of the endpoints, just to contrast this with the, with the neonatal study, there you were actually looking at the reduction in the dose of morphine that would be administered to the to the child. Whereas here you're actually looking at when they are people are checking into kind of um, uh, kind of de-addiction centers, etc. They don't have or technically they shouldn't have any access to to kind of opioids then in that situation you're actually trying to use the device to minimize the the symptoms of opioid withdrawal and therefore it will be a combination of both physician reported as well as subjective kind of endpoints etc is is that is that the right way to put it that's exactly right and so in the adult yes there's no opioids you know obviously they're monitored and they're sure that they're not bringing anything from the outside of the facility but yes there's no opioids you know we're constantly doing urine drug screens and then even at the end of the trial we did what was called an naloxone challenge which is a way to determine physiologically if they're 100 percent detoxified so if they have any residue of an opioid in the brain they'll go into what is called precipitated withdrawal and that is a determinant that they're not fully detoxified. Some some patients on shorter acting opioids like heroin can get through that much quicker. Five days is typically enough for full detox. But then if you're on longer acting opioids such as methadone and some of the other buprenorphine types, uh, it can take seven to 10 days for acute detoxification, uh, which is something that we're looking into as well past the acute phase into the protracted withdrawal phases, which happens on, you know, this, the this ensuing weeks or the following weeks post-acute detox. Um, regarding the neonate, that is, that's actually something that we've, that data has been very influential for us, specifically in the pain population, um, because that's more of a traditional tapering idea. They're on an opioid and we're just essentially weaning them or tapering them down to a desired dose and the neonates, the desired dose is completely off. For adults, that may be 
oh, I may be too high. I might be at 120 MEDD per day, and I need to get down to the CDC standards of 50 MEDD, uh, or I need to move on to a pain pump as an alternative treatment measure. So I need to be off the opioid, not only in a certain amount of time, but then also stay off for a period of time before I can go on to another uh, intervention. Um, so yeah, Arun, you, you're pointing the picture correctly. And one interesting note, back to our original clinical trial, we had to have the patients in moderate withdrawal so that we could show we had a reduction in withdrawal. Uh, so we were waiting to the patients, like we had to wait until they kind of felt pretty bad and then show the effect of the device. Our next study, we're going to be able to administrate the I mean, ideally, why would you, like, what if we could just prevent withdrawal altogether? It's, it's like this, for the FDA, we had to show we could bring withdrawal down, even though you would know 100% of people will go through withdrawal if they stop using heroin. But we had to make them go up and then show they would come down. Our next study, because we've proven that, we just let them put it on in the beginning and hope they never go above a, a, a very mild withdrawal the entire time. And that, that would be more humane and, you know, an, a more ideal path for patients. So you have, um, you have the data and you've obviously published on this, which will include the, the publication in the show notes. Um, but a lot of those are based on scores, especially in the neonates where they're nonverbal, of course. Um, what are some of the, in, in your adult trial, what are some of the anecdotal? Have you heard anything back from the patients I mean, as you said, Naveed, this isn't their first rodeo, so they've got to have some comparison. Were they able to share any of that with you? Well, absolutely, yeah. We have a lot of anecdotal patient testimonials. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's on our website. We have a video of – it is on our website. We have a video of one of our patients in the trial uh, that, that you described, Jojo. You know, not her first rodeo. It was very reluctant to even be in detox. Um has tried buprenorphine, has tried many different types of medications to treat her uh, opioid use disorder. Um, and, you know, one patient even said it was the easiest detox ever, which is really weird to hear, you know. Um, so, you know, we had all, all sorts of different types of patients. And, yes, they all provided their feedback. And um, it was positive, right? It, it was definitely – it wasn't – it wasn't like they were saying, oh, this made my detox worse or anything like that. It was it was all on the side of this helped me. And I would I would I would uh, one thing I want to say real quick. They talk to each other, too. Right. So it's it's kind of a in an inpatient detox facility. It's it's a residential treatment facility. So it's like a home. Right. And so there's multiple rooms. There's kitchens. There's they sit outside and talk to you. And Recovery Unplugged is where we administer the trial, and it, they, they have a lot of music-type treatment, so it's kumbaya-type setting. And when they see one patient with an earpiece on, and they're like, hey, what's that? And like, oh, I'm in a clinical trial, and, you know, I'm, I'm getting, you know, they're treating me. Well, how come I can't get that? You know, and so then that word starts creating a buzz amongst the treatment facility. It's, it's, an, it's a fascinating environment. We had one patient, uh, one of our early patients, I think it was number two or three, went through the trial, uh, did great, relapsed, fell off the wagon a couple weeks later, uh, used again, wanted to get back in and came back and was like, can I get back in that trial? And we, we can't re-enroll the person in the trial. We we're trying to figure out what to do. Um, but that was, you know, I think that was a good testament. Like, hey, that thing got me through this. Help me get back on, right back on the path. So. So 
I have the unfortunate um, experience of being right next to people as they detox from heroin and meth, alcohol, any combination of those things. And, you know, in that, and I know that living environment um, that's very close and communal and, and part of the process. Um, maybe one of you can do this because I, I know I can't without choking up. Can you tell us some of the things that somebody going through detox goes through? What's that experience? Because I don't know that people fully understand and appreciate the brutality of it. Dan, you can explain that play better than I can. Everyone will tell you they think they're going to die. And not like, I think I'm going to, like, they believe they are going to die. The amygdala is completely malfunctioning where you process fight or flight. So besides the, the physiological things, which I can talk about, you're in a state of absolute sheer fight or flight, I'm going to die panic that you're trying to will yourself through with logic. And it just can't be done. I mean, that's, that is why this is such a diabolical drug. Meth is bad. Cocaine's bad. Smoking's bad for you. Yes. The amount that putting your, to get off opioids puts you in a state of, of irrational thought, which is why when people are going through withdrawal, they will say anything. They will do anything. They will steal. They will harm their loved ones because it's that or die in their, in their, in their brain. Um, and then on top of that, I, I watched one video UK guy and he said it was like his bones were boiling one minute then freezing the next. It was such the pain. And remember, we go back to the amygdala also processes pain signals. And when it's dysfunctional, you're feeling pain worse than you should. So you're miserable. Um, your, your guts are completely cramping and you're running to the bathroom constantly. Um, so you don't always make it. So it's embarrassing. Um, sweating, uh, interesting one, snot, you just snot, like, cause your, your sympathetic nervous system is just completely blown out. And so just tearing up, snotting everywhere, um, sweating through your clothes. It's, it's horrible. Um, and, and I, I, I've learned that I've, I, I my position has changed as, a, uh, an opinion on this political or whatnot that I just think we treat, people who are addicted so poorly and what they just need that, that just if we can have more humanity for how tough it is like okay you messed up but now you're trapped and it's going to take several rounds of detox of, of rehab or whatever to get through it but you know just it's just miserable it's just hell and so they have to go through hell to start to get better and then once you're through detox which is miserable you still feel horrible your bones ache, you, you're not producing endorphins, which help regulate pain, anxiety, all that. And then you have to also deal with all the bad choices. And that's just enough to make somebody go, this isn't worth it, and I'll just use again. Because, you know, just because you're detox doesn't mean you fix the underlying challenges. Yeah, We're really rough on our our citizens on how, how they're treated, Yeah, um, unfortunately. So a couple of questions which I will edit it in, which I, I should have meant to ask uh, a few minutes ago. In terms of the clinical trial in the adults, is that, or or for the matter, even in the neonatal population, were they placebo control or did you have parameters that were ineffective that you tried or did all patients get the therapeutic levels of stimulation uh, in the trial? 
Yeah. So, or did you have any type of RCT design where patients actually came off in certain ones, etc.? Right. So I'll start with the neonate since it's published. Um, that was a phase one trial that we got funded through NIDA. Uh, so it was an open label trial. Everyone had okay. the same treatment. Um, be it that you, as it may, they're neonates. You know, they don't. There's no bias to interventions per se, right? Um, you know, in the placebo side, it could be that they're in their, they're in a clinical trial and so they're getting more attention, and that could influence their direction of how they recover and wean off morphine. But national averages are national averages, and you can even go by hospital by hospital if you look at just MUSC. We didn't present that data in the study, but it was a significant shift of the amount of days from uh, what the MUSC's historical data looked at uh, in terms of morphine admin. So, uh, no, it was not a placebo-controlled trial. Uh, in the adults, again, you design studies for a number of reasons. Um, in the case of the adult, Spark was young. We didn't have a lot of money. So we weren't able to do huge, big trials, nor did we need to, because we were predicating off prior technology going through the 510K pathway. Um, that predicate study was retrospective uh, and you know uh, open label. But what I would say is, our, so we designed the trial to be um, almost a crossover design in some way. It's... We had to keep in mind the ethics uh, involving the patients, meaning that we had two groups. One started active stim, the other one had no stimulation. And then after 30 minutes, the no stimulation group then started to receive active therapy. Um, so there was a very short window of time that we could compare across the active versus no stimulation. Um, there was a lot of debate when we designed this trial, mainly from the physician standpoint on would a patient bear two hours, three hours, six hours, one day of no stimulation before they say, nope, I'm out, give me buprenorphine or give me some other type of treatment. Um, and that was, a, that was a question that we had to decide almost from a business standpoint, as opposed to a clinical design, because it would have destroyed our enrollment and potentially drawn out our FDA clearance time, uh, which then require more funding and funding and funding. So we had to be very delicate on how we designed the trial. We tried to put the best randomized control trial we could uh, for what we had. And as Dan already stated, this is just the beginning. You know, the, the next clinical trials are not hinged on FDA or money. It's, it's based on how do we prove that our technology is providing the therapy that we think it is. Fantastic. That's great. So, and then one final question for me here, which is um, who pays for the devices? Uh, so is it the patients themselves, I assume, or is it the healthcare system, which in the case of opioid addiction, depending on what it is, et cetera, it may or may not cover that. So can you just tell us a bit more on what you are thinking about the future commercialization model here? Yeah, so for the adult device, we're 60, about 67 days into FDA approval. So we have started selling. Um, there is no reimbursement when you're novel and new. This is the challenge you face. Uh, the beauty of it being a wearable, um, at least you're not paying for an implant or, or there's no surgery or procedure. Uh, but it is patient out-of-pocket pay. And we're working through early centers, taking our time working through business models with the doctors, how to make this as affordable as possible while still having a healthy business. 
physicians do basically buy it and resell it. So you, you can think of it as if you went to a doctor that did stem cell therapy, it's not reimbursed, but they administer it and you pay them. Uh, and we have like a credit system where the patient can get a credit card on the spot with 15 months, no interest to cover it, trying to make it as accessible as possible. That's a great model. I mean, that a lot of what you were talking about, some of the reasons people become dependent in the first place is, is uh, traumatic events or life-altering events, and that includes financial reasons. So I think that's a, that's a beautiful offering. And I think one that, um, you know, I can easily see um, a charitable use support for something like this. It makes a lot of sense. And- so we're, we're trying to partner, uh, find good partners for exactly that. Um, unfortunately, no matter how much money this saves the system and how great and how obviously it's worth reimbursement, um, it's just going to take us a couple years and, and it's just, you just can't, uh, as a small, co- you know, if we were Medtronic, you, you can make things happen as a small company, you know, with our resources, just reimbursement is a process. We're just going to have to, to go through even it's Medtronic can even or Boston can't make it go that much faster, but you know. We're even, you know, smaller and less influential. So, um, for now, for now, (laughs) just today. And it is one of those altruistic things where you're like, okay, we've demonstrated its work. Now it works. Now the world needs to step in and do the right thing and, and get this to the people who need it. So, um, I wish you guys great, great success and really rapid luck with that one. Um, so, so what's next for spark? Ooh. So we have long, a long-term addiction study uh, that we're looking at starting this year, and that's studying can we help bend the curve of addiction recovery? Like, can we help people stay clean after we help them detox? Uh, we're, that was, uh, so that's big. Uh, and then the, the big baby study this year, too. Uh, an Im- a brain imaging study <laughs> we, for a small company. The, the, the list of clinic, clinical activities for Naveed this year daunting more than ever even did at a big fortune 500. So, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we definitely are pushing all cylinders on clinical and research, um, you know, and publish, we, we want to keep publishing, you know, so, you know, we pub- it's, it's ironic that we started the adult trial first um, and completed it actually first. Uh, but, you know, going to the FDA, that data gets kind of, just sits until it's through the FDA. Um, put on ice. But then we, yeah, you put it on ice and then the neonatal trial caught up and completed. And so we, we published first in the neonatals. Um, but yes, the adult trial is being, um, we're almost done with that, uh, finalizing the data analysis and we'll publish it uh, hopefully very soon. Because um, I think everybody will appreciate it. We actually have a white paper on the interim analysis of the adult that's, uh, I think, available on our web, or you can click to request it, and it'll be sent to you. Um, and then we finished the, uh, the, uh, some more patients, and that's what's being compiled for publication. Right. Are there plans to move into Europe, or is it strictly staying U.S.-focused company? We're getting our ISO uh, compliance audits this year uh, so that we can get to Europe. Um, on top of everything. And then we also have a redesign. We have two redesigns of the product coming. So we learned a ton. Uh, we're testing some different configurations. Um, s- something silly like the electrode sits right on the hairline. So we, people have to shave their hair if they don't have short hair like myself. Um, and 
and that's a barrier to entry. Uh, you know, it's, it's just so we're moving the electrodes around slightly to try to get off the hairlines. It's silly things like that, though, but it's just iterative uh, to continue to improve the product uh, and make it as easy as possible to, to use. So I think well, that's... Thank you guys so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And, and like I said, best success and luck to you guys and, and quickly too, please. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Jojo. It's a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening. Please share the love by sharing the stories you heard, but more importantly, spreading the word about where you heard this information and recommending that your friends and family listen to this podcast. All interviews and soundtracks you heard belong to Scraps, a brand jointly owned by Jojo Platt and Arun Sridhar. Our soundtrack was Digger by Acid Dan, and you can find their collections on all the music apps. Remember to share this podcast. It's Scraps with a K and Sparks spelled backwards. Okay, 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 okay.